This is Alex Pearson. So to all Canadians, this is an issue that we continue to take extremely seriously. And we will continue this work to uphold and strengthen your confidence in our democracy in Canada. And if he repeats that enough and says it more seriously, maybe you'll believe it. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, March 7th, and a good morning to you. Beautiful day out there. Cold, but sunny, so we'll take it. Feeling spring in the air. So great to have you here with us. I wasn't planning to start with this, but then again, the Prime Minister, 515, actually it was like 6 o'clock, decides, oh, I know, I'm going to make an announcement. So here we're talking about it again, because it's taken weeks of denying spin for the Prime Minister to launch what he really, really hopes you will see as an open investigation. This is a National Security and Intelligence Committee that's going to be made up of uh, MPs from multiple parties. There's going to be one senator and a rapporteur that the Prime Minister will choose himself. Now, if you like to play drinking games, you should watch that press conference back because he said the word rapporteur so much that uh, you'd be annihilated. All right? I'm just saying. But that's the word, and you're going to hear a lot of it, so uh, enjoy. But, of course, this is an exercise to make it look like the Prime Minister is taking action on a mess of his own making. But it is the bare minimum of an investigation that will give the Prime Minister control of what information and documents are going to be shown to MPs, and he'll choose which ones can be released, and then they could be and will be edited by the Prime Minister's office or himself. And because the information deals with national security, all MPs would be sworn to secrecy for life, and they can't comment on it until, of course, the Prime Minister's office vets it and approves it for release, which, of course, will work just fine for the Prime Minister and this special rapporteur, this eminent Canadian, declared Mr. Trudeau, who insisted at the press conference yesterday, it's going to take the politics out of this. We've seen a level of partisanship around this question that, for me, requires us to take a step back and to task an eminent, unimpeachable expert, respected and trusted by Canadians, to be able to make recommendations as to what the best path is forward. A rapporteur. Maybe Jerry Butts is available. Dominic Barton. His mother. His brother. Look, if he's choosing this independent expert, um, then we cannot have confidence at all that the politics is going to be taken out of this because Trudeau is the one who made it partisan. Remember, he was deflecting initial questions. Well, it was racist. How could you ask such questions? And then it went to, well, the media's wrong. And now he's pulled this, you know, I'll tell him it's a nifty little stunt here. But he has set the terms to finding the truth that he just could have told two weeks ago. And yet we still do not have a simple answer to the question of when was he told about the threat and what did his government actually do about it? Not all this nonsense about all the tools they have. What did you actually do about it? And the committee that they've got set up or he wants to use isn't going to answer that. Because it's the same oversight committee that recently revealed, like September, that they haven't been able to get one answer, not one answer on five years, 
worth of their recommendations from this government. And that includes warnings that they took to them about foreign interference, not just meddling in the elections, but right across society at large. And they said, quote, the threat is real, if not hidden. If not addressed in a comprehensive whole-of-government approach, foreign interference will slowly erode the foundations of our fundamental institutions, including our system of democracy itself. This was in a committee report written back in 2019. The same committee that we are to trust is going to get us answers, right? I mean, if the Trudeau government is so seized with this issue, and that is what they tell us now, they're seized with it. Then why did they ignore this? Well, the reality is they have not been seized at all with the issue, which is why this is now a major problem. They have done nothing, which is why our allies in the Five Eyes don't ask us to be part of our security meetings anymore. That's why we're being cut out of these things. That's why they keep warning us about things that are happening. This is why there was so much pressure to ban Huawei, which we were the last to do. They have not done anything. So if you don't believe me and say, well, you're just being political, go look at all the documents and research and situations over the last seven or eight years of where Canada has fallen on these issues. And certainly when it comes to threats like China, we are such a problem to our allies. They don't want anything to do with us. This is not going to help. And the NDP, of course, they tabled a motion last week demanding nothing short of a public inquiry. And all the opposition parties are on board for this. And they, the, the premise of it is that they want to say in who runs it and how. But that decision's now been made without them. So the question then becomes, is Jagmeet Singh going to buckle again to the charade? Because Pierre Pauli ever made himself clear on Monday, he will not accept anything but an open inquiry. That's a trick, and that's a trap. What they would do is bring opposition MPs or leaders into a room, give them some information, and then swear them to secrecy so they couldn't ever speak about it again. So effectively, that would be a trick to try and prevent anyone debating the subject anymore. So no, we're not going to, we're not going to have a situation where conservatives are told that they have to be quiet about this scandal because they're sworn to secrecy. We need is a public inquiry that is truly independent to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, look, so he's not going to accept a secret investigation. He made that clear, sending out a statement uh, last night. So where this goes, I, we're going to see. Either the opposition stands on conviction or fold to self-interests. So there's going to be an awful lot of uh, pressure, I think, on Mr. Uh, Singh of what he's going to do. Because the bottom line is Trudeau could have announced what he did on Monday. He could have done this two weeks ago. And that he didn't is why so many people are questioning his motives. Because he went from calling people racist for asking, and now he wants to get to the bottom of this because it's so urgent. And now he's making it look like he's doing something using a committee that he very well knows does not have the ability or the mandate to actually investigate these allegations or the threats to our national security, and who, if anyone in his government, including him, knew about it, or worse, turned a blind eye to it. So if we're to take any of this seriously, and I don't, Trudeau also could have stepped up yesterday and said, look, while we're doing this, we're also going to announce a foreign registry. Didn't happen. Or diplomats are being expelled. Never happens. Or he could have announced any of the measures 
that our allies put in place years ago. And instead, what we got is we're going to have more consultations. We're going to have consultations on a foreign agent registry that he said they would have last year. So we got no action. All you have to do is look at what someone says and what they do. Talk, meet, walk. And we didn't get the walk. So the only real action we've seen is the Prime Minister tie himself into a knot and news that the RCMP is going to hunt down the person who created all these headaches for the Prime Minister. So they're all in on finding the whistleblower. And what we will get is this investigative charade led by a rapporteur that's going to go on for months by the Prime Minister time. And eventually, I'm sure it'll become a lesson we can learn from, or they just won't learn anything at all, which is exactly what the Prime Minister wants. See, we looked. Huh, couldn't find anything. Oh, got a blindfold on. Oh, wow. Anyway, I mean, the irony here is that no one actually accused the prime minister of doing anything. No one actually accused the election of being overturned. And now it's just such a mess of his own making. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is Alex Pearson. Toronto's News. Today's talk, 640 Toronto. All righty, great to have you here. And let's dig into this story that you've been hearing about in the news and on Greg Brady's show about the six-year-old boy said to be locked in a, a small closet for, I, I don't know, there's some disparity. I guess we'll find out at 1.30 in this press conference. 30 minutes um, in this you know, small closet after a full day in the office because he apparently distracted another a child. And when I say a closet, I mean, it's a very, very small closet. And um, the Globe and Mail is suggesting it was longer than half an hour. But I guess we'll get the details of it at the press conference. The vice principal, the principal and teacher at John Fisher Public School, where this is said to have happened, have now uh, been put under investigation and on home duty. They dispute that the boy was locked in this small room. But the mom's alleging that she and her son have faced dozens of instances of racist behavior at this school where her child is said to be the only black child in that particular class. And so this group called Parents of Black Children will be holding this press conference at 1.30, which Kelly Catrera is going to be running. And so we'll get more details. I mean, maybe they can shed light on why this particular uh, case is of racism. Maybe it is. Maybe it's bad teaching. Maybe it's how the schools are set up. Because apparently what got this little boy into trouble is when he was sitting in the office because he had distracted students, and then he asked another student who came in with an injury, what happened, as kids will do. And that was enough is enough moment, I guess, for the teachers. Dr. Marnie Wedlake is a registered and psychotherapist and assistant professor at Western University and joins us now. Great to have you. Good morning. I don't know, I mean, because we haven't heard the press conference um, or, or the, the recordings or, or, or the substantiation to the allegations of racism. That can all play a role. But the, the woman herself, the mom, said she'd been told by the school her son had been disruptive this year. And I'm thinking, well, what six-year-old has not been disruptive? They just came out of two years of lockdown hell. 
Mm-hmm. Right. That's a really great point to start with. Um, six years old, right? Six years yeah. old, busy, active. I mean, anytime a kid is acting or doing anything, there's always a reason for it, right? And as you say, six years old. Mm-hmm. Six years old, yeah. And I'm thinking, my son is nine now, but if I put him in his in a, in a, in a closet-type room for half an hour, I mean, look, I put him in his room, but you know after about two minutes, they're saying, Mommy, can I, can I come out? I'm done. And it's like, it's only been two minutes. I mean, two minutes in a child's life is a very long time. And so when you, when you read the kind of facts as they are right now on paper, is there anything that sticks out to you uh, as far as the discipline here? Sure. And, you know, tricky situation, isn't it? I mean, I'm not prepared to make any comment on whether this did or didn't happen. And clearly um, there's an investigation going on and hopefully all of that will come out. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, know, any kind of uh, punitive, harsh discipline, um, well, I I don't even think the word discipline is appropriate. So if this is... um, if this is found to be accurate and this is what's happening, then I, I, I can't see that this would be discipline, that this would have a, a more egregious name attached to it, right? I mean, this is a six-year-old boy, and to be isolated, um, you know, any child to be isolated and separated in that, for that amount of time period in a small space. Again, if this is found to be what has happened, um, I can't imagine what the thinking would be to lock up a small child in a small space and separate them from their peers. You know, so I, w- yeah. I would now the teacher call it discipline. Yeah, the teachers dispute the the, um, the the facts as they are right now. But again, um, you know, on first blush, that's what we have to go on. But mm-hmm. my issue, and has been for some time, is that in the public system, we have a one-size-fits-all approach. Like, back in my day, there were classes that were separate for those who had learning disabilities, other kinds of disabilities. Uh, we don't have that now. It's kind of like every kid goes in the same room, and they're all just taught, leaving the teacher to have navigate some kids that don't need any extra help. But there will be those who have... ADHD mm-hmm. or ADD, or they will have learning issues. They don't all learn the same, but we don't have a system that can actually uh, accommodate that. So really interesting point. And, um, you know, we could talk for hours and hours and hours on this, but yeah. let's say let's say this little guy is just a really bright, precocious, curious, interested little guy, and everything is interesting to him, and he wants to ask questions and be curious, and he's just full of vitality, that there's not actually anything wrong with him. He's just a really vital, vibrant little guy. I mean, and we have, say we have four or five of those kids in a class, or we have 10 of them in a class, or we've got a class of 36-year-olds, I mean, Mm -hmm. and one teacher. I mean, do we have adequate resources to um, allow these kids to flourish in the way that would be ideal. I mean, again, they're six years old. Is What can you expect from a six-year-old? How long can you expect a six-year-old to sort of attend to task, whether they have any kind of a diagnosis like a, a learning disability or ADHD or what have you, is, is we come back to the idea that these kids are six years old and they're being asked to do a fair bit of paying attention, a fair bit of attending to task, a fair bit of um, self-disciplining uh, over a long period of time. You know, and that that in itself, you can kind of see, I mean, if you, anybody sort of spent half an hour at a birthday party for 10, yeah. six-year-olds, you can see that it's a, a fairly tall order, right? Yes, that's why I understand why my mother drank when I was little. It's like, oh, now I get it, okay? It, it's a lot of work. And if you're a teacher and you've got, let's say, 20, 25, and I would suggest that a lot of six-year-olds are very, very curious, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you will always have a handful of kids who need that extra learning. Uh, my, my son sure. needed that extra help. Um, and if they don't get that help, then they do act out because it's frustrating. If they're not learning because they can't learn, then they're going to find ways to right. act out. And that might be disruptive to other kids. So the concern then becomes added on top that we have this one-size-fits-all school approach in the public system. But then we've got all these issues of the lockdown, which never, I don't think, have been addressed. I don't think lockdown should have happened. I think they did a lot of damage to the kids, but they've also not really been addressed. And certainly not for kids who may be in a lower um, economic cycle. None of the kids have been in that elementary year really made whole. And so I wouldn't be surprised if a bunch of them are having issues and acting out. Now, I think this is a really interesting point that you're raising as well, is that um that period of lockdown. So these kids would have been in, in sort of a, you know one of several prime development stages. Yeah. You know when when uh, socializing, before. exactly socializing, yeah. social skills, taking turns, um, you know sitting still, all these sorts of things. When you're in social environments, when they would have been you know either non-existent or quite restricted. And so uh, what has been done? I mean, I don't know. Maybe there are classrooms somewhere where where there's concerted effort to sort of. Uh, do some, you know, work with the outcome for, for, for these kids. I mean, but outside of all of this, we have to remember that everybody comes into the room, into the life as an individual, right? We all come in with innate temperament, with our own intellectual ability, with our own social skills. Everybody comes to what they're doing in their classroom. All these kids, these six-year-olds in this class are coming from their own home environments, be they good or be they not so good. So, so there's so much to consider as to why uh, one or more kids might be um, distracted or distracting or having a hard time settling. There's all kinds of reasons why, right from innate temperament, right to level of intelligence, to curiosity, whether this child is outgoing and extroverted, a little more precocious or a little more sensitive and introverted, has some learning challenges. There's literally dozens of reasons why some kids are going to need a little bit more attention than others in any kind of a classroom environment. Yeah, and unless you can afford it or unless you can find the facilities or the teaching that works for them, then they're jammed in this school and then they all have to learn the same, which I think puts these kids at, a, at an unfair disadvantage. And I think it puts the teachers in a in a really tough spot because they can't discipline. You know, they're not allowed to discipline or, so to speak, uh, you know, they shouldn't be locking them in the closet. But if you could, and I, I mean, there's so many issues that need to be addressed, what would you be doing to address these kinds of concerns? Like, do we need to go back to having classrooms where maybe kids who need to catch up, who can't really sit still, who have some behavioral issues, do we need to go back to that model? Because I know what the thinking was, let's be fair to all. But I think in trying to be fair for everyone with the one-size-fits-all approach, I think we're being unfair ultimately in the bigger picture. Right. And, you know, so it's, it's a really tricky scenario that you're raising here. And, and, you know, I think the ideal scenario from my perspective would be, um, let's have everybody in the same classroom, but let's make sure it's really well resourced. Don't just have everybody in there with one or two teaching assistants and a teacher, but make sure it's really well resourced and make sure we understand that we're not just catering to individual differences with kids who have a diagnosis or who are obviously struggling, but we're catering to the individual differences of every single child because every child has individual differences. That's just the nature of our humanity. And so if we're going to have classrooms where we want uh, all children to reach their potential and to have a fulfilling, meaningful learning experience, then let's make sure that they're really well resourced. And that requires putting in uh, all the staffing we need to make sure that individual differences can be attended to, be they diagnosable or not, 
be they just simple individual differences of little kids that are trying to have a little kid's experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if the schools don't do the testing and parents don't know to ask, then it doesn't get done. There's so many, so many issues and loopholes here. Nonetheless, we'll see what comes out of this press conference and where uh, things kind of uh, went uh, wrong. But I do appreciate you weighing in. Thanks, doctor. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. That's uh, Dr. Marnie Wedlake, who's a registered psychi- a psychotherapist and assistant professor over at Western. So we will get the details on that. One thirty, Kelly Cotrera's show. But I do think the one-size-fits-all approach is very, very um, a, a presumptuous for kids because it does not work for all of them. And if you can't be patient and, and, and work with the kids, what are you going to do? You know. But you can't put them in a closet. On the other side of this, we're going to uh, talk about the tracking down of a CSIS operative accused of leaking to the media. So that is an investigation. And then we'll talk about the non-investigation into the actual allegations That's next. Stay with us. Alex Pearson, you're listening to 640 Toronto. You're listening to Alex Pearson, Toronto's News, today's talk, 640 Toronto. For interference in our democratic institutions is particular, undermines Kane society. Foreign state actors who engage in these deceptive, covert and hostile activities seek to weaken trust in our fundamental institution and processes, threaten communities, sow division, and ultimately influence policy. Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, that's the head of CSIS there, David Vignon. And on the same day, we learned that the RCMP is officially investigating the leaker of the information to Sam Cooper and the Globe and Mail's reporting. Um, We've got the prime minister who flip-flopped all over the place in his answers. I mean, he made clear from day one that someone would pay for the leaks, not so much the the other side of this. But, you know, it's interesting because CSIS employees are bound to this permanent secrecy when it comes to what they see in the classified information. And if you're caught sharing it, it, it's a very serious jail term or penalty. So it's not that the RCMP is investigating the allegations that have surfaced that they seem to be worried about. It, you know, on one hand, we've got an actual criminal investigation to find the messenger. But on the message itself, we get a committee hearing that a lot of people are saying, look, it's just going to further muddy the waters. It just will not get us the answers. Let me bring in Stephanie Carvin to this conversation, associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University and a former national security analyst with the government of Canada. Good to have you. Hi, thanks for having me on. You would know what happens when you're kind of sworn. It's like an oath. You do not leak this information. Um, so, look, we have, as you know, we, uh, we have very bad whistleblower laws in this country. Some of the worst are, they say, in the world. So whomever leaked this information could be you know, facing serious uh, penalties, assuming, Stephanie, that they are in Canada and not maybe one of our Five Eye partners. But how could they or would they go down to uh, tracking that? So, you know, there's always a number of ways, um, you know, uh, there was a, uh, you know, there's a famous case in the United States where there was a woman who was working in intelligence and wanted to show, uh, you know, the levels of foreign interference that she felt wasn't being covered by the military. So she printed out documents and leaked them to the media. Um, it, but the thing is, when you print uh, out yeah. a document, they put little dots on the document so they can identify exactly who printed it when and where. So uh, that person was reality winner in the United States, and um, she ended up uh, serving uh, quite a lengthy, uh, or getting quite a lengthy jail sentence as a result of uh, what she did, right, Uh, leaking to the press. So, um, you know, we can expect that Canadian authorities might have similar 
methods in place where, you know, certain documents, um, you know, uh, may not be protected uh, in terms of, um, you know, or like they may have some kind of indications on where they came from, uh, if, where they were printed. Uh, certainly, um, when you have very highly classified information, they keep very strict rules on who has, who access what when, right? They can, you know, all the information is stored on computers. So they, they should have some idea as to who would have access to this information. And, you know, one of the things I keep seeing on social media is that, you know, it's a CSIS, CSIS leak this information, CSIS leak this information. That's not necessarily the case, right? I mean, mm. it's literally anyone who has access to this reporting through government systems or through, you know, they received a paper copy, which would kind of be unusual, I think, um, but uh, or who may have received a brief or those kinds of things. So I think, um, you know, there, there's a range of tracking who has had access to this to this information. But um, depending on the level and depending on uh, what kinds of documents, we could be talking about anything from a few hundred people to a few thousand. Yeah. Uh, well, I, stay tuned on that one. I mean, it's interesting. Um, Cameron Ortez, uh, he's a former RCMP spy master. He was charged back in 2019 because he violated the Security of Information Act, or allegedly. Um, but we know nothing about it. This is a guy who got released on bail back in December. Uh, yeah. He was supposed to be tried in October. <laughs> we know nothing about his case. But here's a guy arrested three years ago, accused of being a Chinese spy. That guy's out on bail, and I don't know who he's talking to. So we're very weird on, on how seriously we take this, Stephanie. I mean, apparently it's yeah, urgent just, to catch the whistleblower and then we let one out. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just to clarify, he was never accused of, he, he's only ever been accused of uh, leaking information to criminal sources, not Chinese. That was a, actually a misnomer. He studied uh, out West in uh, British Columbia. He definitely had expertise on China, but uh, mm-hmm. all the allegations have been, um, you know, the fact that he sold this information to criminal gangs. So that's just it. People will sell, you know, this information to a range of folks. And in this case, um, I think it was like selling information to, uh, you know, potent- that could potentially disrupt uh, criminal uh, intelligence operations as opposed to state intelligence operations. So now we go, so, so that investigation will go on. Uh, but on the other side, the investigation Canadians want and polling has shown is that, you know, they want to know if there's interference in this country. Um, and so the prime minister comes out and he announces, you know, that this National Security and Intel Committee will look into this. This is an executive committee and not a parliamentary one. Um, but I think a lot of people are going to see this as theater because, again, it gags the MPs. It, it, we're not going to get to see any of the national security stuff, which, you know, fine. But how do you see this particular exercise where we're going to get this rapporteur, uh, you know, coming in? Um, you know, Pierre Polyever is not going to accept it. But how, do you see us getting anything out of this or do you see, see this as political theater? Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it's hard, right? Because, like, so the problem is, like, OK, so if you get intelligence from a source, right, mm-hmm. and says, OK, look, there's all this interference going on. Um, you know, there's good indication that this MP's campaign took money or that, you know, um, they got their nomination through kind of um, salacious ways. This person's taking a personal risk and providing that information to the service. And so, you know, to have a public inquiry putting out all this intelligence literally puts that person's life at risk, right? So the nice thing about something like the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians is that these are cleared members of parliament who understand what intelligence is, who can see the full picture, put it together, put a report together while protecting the literal lives of people who have given up 
information um, about some of these uh, allegations that we've been hearing, right, that have been making their way into these very serious uh, reports. So I see that. But it gives the prime minister an awful lot of control because he ultimately, the prime minister's office, will declare what documents are seen, what is, you know, released. And and for the MPs, they can't talk about it. And so, you know, it's like a just trust us kind of approach. Like, it is, I mean, yeah, it technically flows through the prime minister's office, but all of the redactions are done by the security agencies themselves. Right. And I would I would hope and expect that if the prime minister had uh, altered a report to the point that it was no longer telling the truth, that the members of the committee itself, which is dominated by the opposition at this point, would, in fact, speak out and say, no, this is not indicative of the report that we wrote. Right. So I think there's enough safety valves on the system. And so far, we've never had that that complaint come forward. The other thing here, too, is that there's another agency that's involved that doesn't get nearly as much attention, which is National Security Intelligence Review Agency. And they're also going to be looking into this. So these are not politicians. These are this is like a, a, a completely independent agency that produces a report again redacted. I, I mean, technically it goes to the prime minister's office, but that's how it gets you know disseminated to the intelligence. Or sorry, the yeah the intelligence community who then does the redactions if, if things are safe. But one of the things they've also done is they've also written reports in ways that it doesn't contain classified information, so no redactions are necessary. So the report can be published as is. So it's like there's going to be like multiple committees looking at this one problem. And then on top of that, there's going to be this independent rapporteur. Again, I mean, sure. Um, I mean, and, and the other thing is like we don't really have good independent options here. Like even if we went for an right. independent inquiry, that independent mm-hmm. inquiry would be appointed by the prime minister under terms dictated by the prime minister uh, and mm-hmm. serving at the pleasure of the prime minister. Right. So it's like any of the options we have are going to run into the same problem that NSERA, uh, I'm sorry, that the NSI cop, this controversial committee often gets accused of having. Like everything's going to go through the prime minister's office anyway. So we might as well just use the institutions we have. Oh, it's going to be such a long few months, but nonetheless, <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk. It's going to be a very political six months. All right, Stephanie, we'll talk again. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. That's Stephanie Carvin. She's uh, over at uh, Carleton University, but former national security analyst with the government of Canada. So everyone's got kind of their view of how they see this falling out, playing out, the political side, the investigative side. Um, it's going to be a very interesting next few weeks. Pierre Polyevra is expected to uh, come out at 11 o'clock and give a statement. We're just waiting to find that out and his position on this. I don't think it'll be a stretch to say he's not going to support it. And then I think the big uh, kingmaker would be Jagmeet Singh. Not sure what he'll say, if he'll say anything today, but uh, maybe we'll get an idea of whether or not this is going forward or it's going to turn into a big political fight. Listening to Alex Pearson, Toronto's News, Today's Talk, 640 Toronto. If you hear my stomach rumbling, that's what it is. I can't I can't help it. It's so loud. I'm like, oh my God, can I hear this? This mic picks up everything. But yeah, tummy's growling. So let's talk about um this was, I mean, I remember it. It was a massive cross-border drug case, the biggest in our city's history, and it's collapsed. And we don't really know why, but this was a multi-jurisdictional investigation between Mexico and the U.S. when it broke back in 2021. And 
when it was announced back by then Chief Raymer. I mean, Project Brissa was met with a lot of fanfare because it was a months-long investigation. It took four tractor trailers full of drugs, 61 million bucks of coke and crystal meth off the streets, and 182 charges were laid, 20 people busted. So why, you know, did the case fall apart? Why do all these big cases seem to get interrupted and or something happens at the last minute? Sonia Schickman is a criminal defense lawyer, not particularly involved with this case, but certainly has defended her share of clients dealing in drug offenses. Good to have you. Haven't talked to you in a while. Nice to hear you. Hi, Alex. Nice to hear you. I don't know. You know, we don't know why the charges were dropped because the Crown doesn't have to tell us. Um, all we know is what we've heard from the defense and that they're saying, well, look, there were a lot of procedural problems. What is it, Sonia, in these particular cases that can be so problematic? Because it's not like none of the charges were heard. It's just there were some left on the table and then they just kind of go away. So it's an interesting question. Alex, you um, alluded to why do all these investigations sort of seem to fall apart? Um, Mm. They all seem to fall apart for different reasons on the one hand, on the other hand, similar reasons. So let me sort of break that down. Um, This was a Crown state, so the Crown didn't have to give any reason. So really, it's up. uh, unlike in other investigations, I don't know if you remember, Alex, an organized crime investigation I was involved in where the Mm -hmm. charges were stayed due to bail delays on one for some of the accused, and then uh, charges were stayed for other accused for unreasonable delay in getting to trial. There we knew for a reason uh, specifically that it was a Crown failure, really. The Crown, with respect to bails, failed to secure a courtroom for bail hearings, the court resources fell short in securing um, bail hearings, timely bail hearings for the second set of the accused. Um, it was a lengthy delay because the Crown prosecution team failed to provide timely disclosure. And it was years before the disclosure came about, before the matter could even be set for trial. This case is a little different. We have no idea why. And everybody seems to be a little bit lip sealed about it. So let's talk about some possibilities. So in an investigation such as this, in order to um, stop the trailers, search them and seize them, the police require a warrant. That warrant is a complicated, lengthy document that is sworn by the police officer, but it's about all the information known to them. In challenging the warrant, if the warrant ever gets challenged, meaning that the defense lawyers, if they ever argue that the warrant should not have been issued, questions such as were the police officers honest with the issue in justice or the judge who, who authorized the warrant? Did they tell the truth? Did they disclose all the information they were supposed to disclose? Did they follow the procedure? So uh, Greg LaFontaine, from what I understand, who represented one of the individuals, talked about some procedural problems. It's a very cryptic uh, and interesting way of saying things. And I wonder if uh, the stay came as a result of an unspoken agreement between the Crown and the lawyers about not speaking about the details of the problems. But one of the things that comes to mind is perhaps there was some issue with uh, honesty or detail provided to the issue in justice. That's one guess. Perhaps the Crown and the defense lawyer spoke and uh, an experienced prosecutor was um, advised of the problems by the defense counsel who reviewed the disclosure, reviewed the search warrant and spotted some issues and said, look, you're going to have a problem. That's one very real possibility. 
Yeah, because they're, they're, they're very complex operations that are, are across all sorts of jurisdictions. I mean, you, you look at some of the big projects that have been busted. They can blur the lines between York Region and police and Toronto police. In this case, we're talking about a case that had to do with Mexico and the United States. So it's not even that you have to dot your I's and cross your T's. You have to literally get it perfect or technicalities can, can make it fall apart. I mean, I looked through this morning because I'm like, another one, like you look to Project Syndicato. This was an organized crime bust. It fell apart in 2018 over wiretap issues. There was the 2018 Very Project Alex. Zen. Yeah, but the, I'm just saying these big projects where they spend months and months, a lot of them, whether it's the massive margam, organized crime fell apart, evidentiary issues, uh, Project Zen fell apart uh, over you know, warrant issues. So there's a lot of things that can go wrong in these oh, cases. Sure, I just want to jump in there, Alex, yeah, because yeah. I think I have to take... Um I have to take issue with, the, with, with something you said. They fall apart on technicalities. They absolutely do not fall apart on technicalities. Um, in fact, there's lots of cases. The, cr- the crown might forward. disagree. I'll take the crown's position and say, I disagree with, <laughs> with my friend. <laughs> However, <laughs> let me talk to you about Project Syndicato. The police listen yeah. to yeah. confidential yeah. discussions between that is not. And they weren't allowed to. Yeah. I would well, think yeah, that not in listeners. that case, but yeah. Similarly, not in the case that I was involved in, where uh, an accused had to wait three weeks, presumed right. innocent, before they get a chance of a bail hearing. These yeah. are not technicalities. These are that, things. Those are not, I, for I sure. hope that your uh, your listeners, we as citizens, want those protections to be there. And when the crown and the police know their duties and fail in executing them. We as a society who believe in our justice system and are protected by our justice system would want uh, there to be a penalty, would want the court to recognize that those prosecutions cannot continue. Um, So they really, such big projects rarely fall apart in technicalities. In fact, the law from our highest court now is that technicalities will not result in exclusion of evidence. So there are many cases where warrants are technically problematic and there are some small issues where the police, to use your terminology, fail to dot all the I's and cross all the T's. But the court says that's not enough for the charges to be, for the uh, results of the search to be excluded and subsequently, if ever, the charges to be stayed. For charges to be stayed, there has to be something significant. It is a very high test. We don't know what it is in this case and like in the previous two cases, you and I talked about it, but I assure you it's not a mere technicality. Wouldn't it be nice, Sonia, if we could get some transparency so that we didn't have to speculate what it is? I Maybe there's a good reason, but in Canada, um, <laughs> we just have to stay tuned and hope in the next couple of years we'll hear it. But we, I'm sure we'll get the reasoning at some point. I, I appreciate you breaking down what's very hard to break down. Anytime, Alex. Nice to talk to you. That's uh, Shania Schickman, who uh, is a criminal defense lawyer. So they're a very complicated case. It's just a shame to see uh, when they fall apart. The drugs don't go back on the street, though, so let's take the uh, silver lining on that.